for a moment, I just want to defend the Pharisees. Normally when, when Bible people or people who teach the Bible, read the Bible, talk about Pharisees, they're always like the evil guys. They're always the, the bad guys. When you hear Pharisees, you picture like just really mean looking men. And that's, that's who you sort of, how they're sort of depicted. And yet they ask a perfectly legitimate question to me. Here, they're asking Jesus, how, how can you eat with this guy, Matthew? And before we even think, how can you ask a question? Listen, if you had known Matthew, you would not have liked Matthew. I remember he, his whole work is unjustly taking money from other people. Taxing them at outrageous prices. And imagine you're driving home from church today, and, and someone in a Bentley pulls you over. They get out, right? And they're, they're an official from the state of Kansas. They make you empty out your car, everyone has to get out, and they start looking for your car. They look in the glove box, they look in any bag you have, they're looking under the seats, they look at everything you have, they decide how much all that is worth, and then they hand you a giant tax bill that you have to give to them personally that they get to keep. Are you going to invite that person over for dinner? No. That's why the Pharisees are looking at Jesus and, and saying, how can you do that? And so, interestingly, they actually ask the disciples that question, they they look at the disciples and they ask, listen, how can you, how can your teacher eat with this guy? With tax collectors, with, with sinners? It's such a good question that Jesus actually doesn't let the disciples answer. He jumps in first. And here's what he says in verses 12 through 13 to answer the question they've asked. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous as sinners. Now Jesus is saying one of two things here, but he can't be saying both. That either he's saying, there are some really sick people out there, Pharisees. And you, you see them. They're, I'm eating dinner with them right now. They're really messed up. Right? You guys are awesome. Right? Pharisees, you're great, wonderful, but these people are, are sick. Right? So I'm, I'm going to spend time with them because they need help. Right? That's option one or option two is what Jesus is saying is, is that everyone's sick. Some people see it and they can sit down and have a meal with me. Some people can't. And they'll never know me because of it. And we know it's the, the second thing that he's saying because of what, what Jesus says in the second sentence, which is when he says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. Which was, it's a common phrase in that day. It was a phrase the Pharisees actually would have used themselves. Commonly, when they were teaching the Bible, they would look at people who didn't know the Bible as well, and they would say to them, go and learn what this means. You need to go and study your Bible course. You, you know it better like me. And what Jesus is saying to these Bible scholars who read their Bibles all day and think they know them, Jesus is saying to them, you need to go back and reread your Bible. You're missing something that is at the center of the story, of the, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. Because that's what Jesus is referring to here. And then Jesus quotes Hosea 6, 6, 6, 6 at them. What's the Bible that he says, you don't know it well enough? Because if you read the Bible, and it's, if it, the Bible says anything, it says every human being is sick. Every human being is a sinner. And so the question for us this morning is, do you think you're sick? Do you think you have the need for Jesus and the healing he's offering? But the moment I ask that question, I know we're not the right people to answer it for ourselves. Because, I mean, on the one hand, you see the Pharisees, they're blind to their own sickness, their own disease. They don't see their brokenness, which makes them incapable of fellowship with Jesus. But even more than that, if, if I was to ask the question, hey, do you think you're sick? My guess is most of us are going to answer it in one of three ways, none of which are, are helpful. Right? Some of us are going to say, you know what? I'm fine. I'm not really that bad off. I'm, I'm not sick. And which Jesus is saying, no, you really are. You have a problem here. Or there are those of us who, who know we're sick, but it's such a, 
It's such a debilitating fact to us. It's so overwhelming. It's, it discourages us. It depresses us. We wonder if we're worthy to be in relationship with other people, especially with God. Right? Our own, we're well acquainted with our own brokenness so that actually it, it's, it's a debilitating fact to us. Or three, there are those of us who would say, yeah, I'm, I'm sick, but we, that acknowledgement almost blinds us to the, the reality. We don't know how deep our sickness actually goes. Like we think we have asthma when we really have terminal lung cancer. So we're not the right people to answer this question for ourselves. And so instead of just asking, hey, do you think, you're, do you, think you have the sickness that Jesus is talking about here? I want to offer three diagnostics for us to, to see. If you have these experiences, it's a sign that, that you understand what Jesus is saying here. That if he came and feasted, you would, you would join the feast. You wouldn't sit back in judgment. So three diagnostics. First, um, you, you can know you understand that what Jesus is saying here about your own sickness when, when you're constantly uncovering the the fact that your sickness is even worse than, than you thought. Right? There's, there's more depth to your evil, to your sinfulness, than you first realized. If you asked me eight years ago, I probably would have told you, I'm basically a selfless person. I basically mostly live for other people. Um, I mean, I wouldn't have said that right away. You'd probably have to ask me a couple times. Oh, really? Do you think, oh, well, I guess so. Like, it would have been slow, but that's what I thought, generally. And then you say, well, why eight years ago? Um, it was because I got married eight years ago. And, and after getting married, I, I quickly realized how selfish I was. <laughs> and what's happened over the last eight years is just when I get to the moment, the Lord's like, oh, man, I'm so selfish. But God's grace is great. Then it's like I go to another, I found out I'm actually, oh, it's worse. Like I'm even more selfish than I thought. And my, my selfishness is this deep cave with many unexplored caverns. And every time I think I've, I've gotten to the back of the cave, Jesus shows me a new place. Right? It, goes, it goes deeper. It goes further. Right? And that, if, you, if you have an understanding of what Jesus is saying here, listen, you're you understand your evil, your sinfulness more and more, not less and less. On the other hand, people who don't think they have significant flaws or don't understand what Jesus is saying here, often what happens is, is you actually grow increasingly blind to them. And so things that are, are obvious to everyone else, actually you don't see anymore because you don't see your sickness. You're growing more and more blind to flaws in you. So C.S. Lewis, he describes this process well. Here's what he wrote. So when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that's still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he's not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right. But I would say this morning, if you, if you don't think you're that bad, if there are people you look down on, there are people you think that you're better than, should not be an encouragement to you. It should be a warning. That's what Jesus is saying here. That, that if you understand your sickness, you don't get to a place where you start to feel better about yourself. There's the, 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 the sickness goes deeper. Well, the second diagnostic that I would say that is a sign you understand Jesus. What he's saying here is that, that you see yourself as Jesus too patient. Well, you have to remember Matthew is writing his conversion story for us here. Right? He's, he's laying out the moment when he became a Christian. And what's interesting to me is Matthew doesn't record like some really great conversation he has with Jesus where he looks really insightful or smart. Instead, Matthew takes you to what might have been a couple of the most healing moments in, in all of his life. I mean, in the first place, he's sitting in a tax booth, right? He's ripping people off. And that's where Jesus comes and says, hey, you come and follow me. And then Matthew, he, he invites Jesus into his house. He has a big party. There's all these sinners in his house. And the Pharisees come and they basically walk into Matthew's house. Look at Jesus and his disciples and say, how are you with this guy? I mean, imagine Matthew for that moment. It would have been humiliating, right? In your own house, people insulting 
And if that's not clear enough, in a chapter, beginning of Matthew 10, Matthew will list for us the 12 disciples. And when he lists for us the 12 disciples, for most of the disciples, he just puts their name or an interesting fact of Peter, brother of Andrew, James and John, they were, they were brothers. But when Matthew names himself, he says, Matthew, the tax collector. As if to say, I, I don't belong in this list. Jesus should not have picked me. I'm his chief patient. And I would say this text reveals that to be a Christian is to give up any thought that you're better than anyone else. You're not. You cannot look down from anyone in the position of following Jesus. You're his chief patient. Matthew understood that. The final last diagnostic I would say is when you understand what Jesus is saying about your sickness, is you know you're that sick when, when you give up on home remedies. Right? You don't have a cure for yourself. You can't find the right diet. You can't exercise enough. There is not an essential oil for, to take care of this for you. Okay? And you cannot cure yourself. And yet, here's the good news. When you get to that point, when you can't cure yourself, right, when you're constantly uncovering new ways in which you're more broken, you're worse than you thought, when you see yourself as Jesus' patient, Jesus' chief patient, that is the moment you're ready for Jesus to come up to you and say, follow me. Let's go to your house. Let's have a, let's have a party, right? That, that moment is not a moment for despair or brokenness, right? It's a moment that Jesus calls you to himself. Right? Only sinners can follow Jesus, and sinners who know they're sick, that is not a disqualifying factor. That is your non-negotiable becoming Christian. When you see yourself as a sinner, it's a, it's a door in, not a gate out. So sinners, hey, we know we're sick. Two, we know, we know we have to start over. But the first question that gets posed to Jesus is from the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were often hostile to Jesus as they are here. But the second group, the second question that gets posed to Jesus is from John's disciples, which would have normally been friends. Of Jesus, And yet here they, they have a question, which again, I think is a completely legitimate question. If you remember John the Baptist from Matthew 3, John ate wild locusts and he dipped them in honey. Like that was his treat, because he ate bugs, but sometimes they had honey on them, right? It's, it's just a terrible meal. Most likely his disciples ate the same thing. And so they, they see Jesus at this really wealthy guy's house. And then clearly, he's, listen, he's wealthy. He's not going to have bad food or bad drinks. So it's great food, great drink. And they see Jesus' disciples, and they're, they're like, well, what's going on here? Like, this isn't fair. And so they come up, and they ask uh, a question that anyone who's hungry would ask, um, a question that someone who needs a good meal would ask. And they look at the disciples, again, asking Jesus' disciples, say, why are you feasting while we're fasting? Right? Why is there rare steak on your plate, and I just, a bug just fell and died, and I got to eat lunch? This isn't fair. Why, why are you doing this, and why are we doing this? Now, and again, Jesus jumps in before his disciples can answer the question. The question is too good. <coughs> so Jesus tells three quick parables to explain why he is, is feasting and, and not fasting. And, and the first parable he tells is, is of a, a groom at a wedding. But Jesus actually he compares himself to a groom at a wedding. And when, a, when the groom shows up and there's a wedding, it's a party. Right? It's a feast. Right? If you want to go to a wedding and fast, please don't sit next to me. Right? I don't want to be next to you. You can fast somewhere else. I want to feast. I want to have a good time. That's what we do at weddings. And that's what Jesus is saying. Here is it. Life with me is like, it's like a feast. It's like a party. It's like a celebration. If my disciples fasted with me, that would make any sense. My life with me is too good to fast. That's the first parable. The other two parables are about shirts and, and wineskins. And the basic idea there is, is when you make wine in the old, I mean, in that day, you would pour it into a wineskin. But if you poured a, a new wine into an old wineskin, by the time it ferments it, the old wineskin would stretch, it would break, and the wine would spill out, and you'd ruin both the wine and the wine. Jesus says, no, if you have new wine, you need a brand new 
wineskins. So the question is, okay, well, how did these three parables help answer the question to why Jesus' disciples are feasting and John's disciples are fasting? What, what, how do they explain it? Jesus is really saying two things in these three parables. But one, Jesus has a better feast. And two, um, Jesus says you have to start over if you're going to come back. He starts with saying, listen, I have a better, a better feast. And the first time I heard the song, Seven Years Old, by, by Lucas Graham, I assumed it was a, sung by a really old guy. And then there's the chorus, the end of the song, it says this, um, Soon I'll be 60 years old, while I think the world is cold, or while I have children who can warm me, soon I'll be 60 years old. <laughs> once I was seven years old, my mama told me, go make yourself some friends or you'll be lonely, soon I'll, or once I was seven years old. Nothing warms the spirit like singing about lonely death, right? And yet, Lucas Graham is 27. Most likely the height of his career, right? He has access probably to more money, more fame, more power than he'll ever have in his entire life. He has access to more, more influence, to more of, of, of an indulgent lifestyle than ever, he'll ever have. And yet, when he wants to sing a song, he goes to the, the topic of a lonely death. But he's, listen, he's tasted everything this world has to offer. It's still not enough. And Matthew, likewise, had had access to anything he wanted, yet he was enormously wealthy. He could have gotten near anyone he wanted. He could have had anything he wanted. And yet Jesus comes up and says, hey, I, I have a better feast for you. And Matthew gets up and goes and leaves. And Jesus has a better feast, and he's explicit about that. He's saying life with me is like life at a wedding. Great food, dancing, celebration. And when Jesus talked about heaven, he often described it as a banquet. One of the last things Jesus said to his disciples was, Listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Like, we're going to have a huge feast, and it's going to take a while. And then that's why Jesus hasn't come back in 2,000 years. It's taken that long for him to set up the celebration, the party that awaits us in the life to come. Jesus is saying, life with me is better. And I would say, oftentimes, Christians, pastors, we tend to say things like, your life's such a mess without Jesus. It's so terrible. If you don't come and follow Jesus, your life's going to be miserable. And I, listen, in our culture, it's really hard to say that because your life's probably really good. You probably have... Decent money, you can take vacations, you can cover up a lot of your pain with, with the finances that you have attributable to me, but attributable to you. But, but what this passage is saying is it doesn't matter how good you think your life is. It doesn't matter how much money you think you have or how much access you have to this life. It's not as good as life with Jesus. I don't care how good you think your life is now, it is not as good as a life with Jesus. This is what he's saying here. He has a better feast. No matter how good your feast is, no matter how good your life is here, it's oftentimes we feast to numb ourselves from pain, right? To numb ourselves from that which hurts us, to distract ourselves from our real lives. And if listen, if there's no if there's no Jesus in your life, if there's no God in your life, and ultimately you're eat drink for the mocking God. That's not a better feast than what Jesus offers here. Because Christians, listen, our celebration runs on our best days and on our worst days, right? It, to be a Christian doesn't just mean that I can celebrate on my really good days, which is true. If you listen, you know Jesus, you can only celebrate when your life is good. But for us, us Christians, in days of sorrow and suffering, we can still have joy because what did Jesus do for us? What was the ultimate act for us? It was dying on a cross. It was pouring out his, his blood for us. It was breaking his body for us. He knows your sorrow. He knows your suffering. Bring it to him. You don't have to numb yourself from it. You don't have to distract yourself or hide from it. Bring it to him. And for Christians on our best day, right, it's just a taste of what's coming. Right? My best day in my life is nothing compared to the worst day of what is to come with Jesus. He has a better feast. 
That's the first thing he's saying in these three parables. The second thing is you have to start over. When he talks about new wineskins, what he's saying is you cannot, you cannot attach a life, your old life to him. You can't. It's time to start over. And you cannot bring a bad lunch to Jesus' feet. You have to peace. You have to come with empty hands and let him fill But the reality is it's going to be really easy for you and I to go to church to think that we are Christians. When really all we've done is, is make Jesus a patch into our old life, right? He's a, he's a new one in an old wineskin, right? He's, but he's not really redefined your existence. He's, he's more like an app on your phone than a, than a new operating system. And the reality is you could live your life without him right now, and no, nothing would look any differently. But one of the ways you know you, you've heard the call like Matthew, you've heard the call to follow me, to follow Jesus, is that you started over. The one, one way to illustrate this, this week I, I got to spend some time uh, riding uh, with one of our police officers who uh, attend our, our church. And for most of the, it's a pretty, it's a pretty slow afternoon, and for most of the time I was just talking his head off. He was probably wanting me to shut up, but I was asking all kinds of questions. Like, what do you do? I wanted to understand, and, and just have fascinating stories about his work. Um, and every now and then I wasn't, like, there was a radio talking to us the whole time. And every now and then I wasn't sure if there was, like, like something serious going on, but I was just talking over it the whole time. Uh, but it was clear, he's probably listening to the radio the whole time, not me anyway. Because there was one moment when we had to stop and we had to turn the radio up. We dropped everything we were doing and we went to the, the one call that we had. During that time, I was, I was with him. Right? Then when the radio says you, you have to go here, you stop what you're doing and you, you drop. And listen, if you follow Jesus like that, he does everything to stop. And you move in a new direction, whatever he asks, wherever he goes. New wines and a new wine skin. It's a new shirt, right? You cannot attach an old life on to him. He's calling. The only sinners can follow Jesus because we listen. If you're a sinner that follows Jesus, you know you're sick. You know you have to start over. And you know there's only one cure. And then just to defend the Pharisees again for a, another moment, there's something else they get right in the question they ask to Jesus about, well, how can you be with this guy? So we, live, we live in a, a very hyper-individualistic culture, so we tend to think things like, the crowd doesn't influence me, or I can be around people, I'm my own person, no one, no one can tell me what to do, I'm, I'm my own self, right? And that tends to be the way we look at things, but that, listen, that is categorically not true. It, the crowd absolutely shapes you. And something I heard Tim Keller say, which was really helpful to me this week, is, is ultimately you will become like who you eat with. Now, who you eat with is a, is a great window into who you are Becoming, and I, 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 listen, that has been true in my own life. So when I was in seminary, I took a lot of classes, but, but some of the days that shaped me far more than my seminary classes was my, the small group I was part of. But it shouldn't have. And for one, there was only one time during the week I could guarantee I could be there every week because I had two jobs in school. And so Sunday afternoon, 12.30 p.m. was the only time I could do small group. Well, I was a worship leader, which meant I worked all Sunday morning with worship, Exhausted and, and Spanberg men were already predisposed. Like Sunday afternoon is Spanberg man napping time. There's not Spanberg man awake. It's Sunday at 1 p.m. And, and now it's my community group is going to be, right? So I'm tired. I'm exhausted. It's the worst time for me to have a small group. And then the other part that was bad about that was that almost the whole small group was other seminary students or college students. And so it was right at lunchtime, so we'd have a pitch in at lunch. And as, as hard as we tried to like get people to bring different things, like every week, everyone, all the college and seminary students, all they could bring was a loaf of bread. She didn't have, like, our lunch was like a side of fruit and seven loaves of bread. It was a terrible lunch. And yet, yeah, week after week, we ate all that bread, a little fruit. We ate, we, we, 
we talked, we, we, had, we did life together, we ate together, and slowly I became more like those people than, than all the time I spent in class. Became a better husband, better father, better Christian, better pastor. Because you become like who you be with. It's why the Pharisees are right to look at Jesus and say, how can you eat with these people? When you eat with bad people, you become bad. When you eat with unclean people, you become unclean. And that's why Jesus quotes Hosea 6, 6 at them. God speaking, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What does that mean? How is that an answer to the, the tax collector or the Pharisees' review? Well, the word mercy in Hosea 6, it's the Hebrew word has said. Normally I'd never say Hebrew word um, in church because it just look, makes me look silly, but, but that's if there's any Hebrew word you need to know, it's that one. Because just about any time God wants to make himself abundantly clear to his people, that word comes up. He's like, I want you to know this. This defines me. I'm my said. And it gets translated as mercy, as steadfast love, as faithfulness. My favorite translation of that word is in the Jesus story of the Bible, which you should read, whether you're an adult or a child, that uh, Solid Lloyd Jones wrote, wrote, uh, um, translates that word as, as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what God has said is, his mercy is over us. And so when the Pharisees look at Jesus and say, how can you eat with this guy? And Jesus says, because of God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always, and forever love. What does he say? What does he mean? Well, Matthew 9 is tying up the thread. It started in Matthew 8. We talked about it two weeks ago. There's a moment in Matthew 8 where a leper comes up to Jesus and, and says to Jesus, if you will, I'll be, I can be clean. Not, what he's not saying to Jesus there is, is if, you, if you can come up with the right concoction, if you can recite the right incantation, literally what the leper says is, if you want me to be clean, I'll be clean. Jesus responds and says, I, I will be clean. But then Jesus did something he, he shouldn't have done. He didn't have to do that. He reaches out and he actually he physically touches the leper and heals him. And that you, you didn't do that, right? We talked about that. It, you didn't just not touch leopards. You walked on the other side of the street of them. You didn't get near them. Because if you, if you got near a leopard, if you touched a leopard, you could get the sickness yourself. Right? It's the same question the Pharisees are asking Jesus here at Matthew. If you hang out with tax collectors and sickness, you're going to get the sickness. You're going to get that, that uncleanness yourself. Which is why religious people often draw a bright line between the good people and the bad people, the religious people and the irreligious people. If we cross that line, then we'll get the sickness. We'll become like them. So why did Jesus touch the leper? Why does he eat with unclean people? It's because of God's mercy. But Jesus can get near anything unclean. He can even touch what's unclean, but it doesn't get to him. Instead, Jesus can make anything that's unclean because of God's mercy that's poured out in his life. There's nothing Jesus cannot touch that will not become that clean. Which means if he gets near you and you're sick, he can make you well. And if those who are sick get near him or get near his people, they can't make us sick. They won't make him sick. Which raises all the question, how? How, how is God's mercy like that where Jesus can get in, near anything unclean Jesus gives you the hint in verse 15. When he's, he says, life with me is it's like life at a wedding. Right? I'm the groom. I'm with my disciples. Now that's why we're feasting. And then he says in the second sentence, but there will come a day when the groom will be taken away. 
As we read on in Matthew, what we find is the groom isn't just taken away. Jesus isn't just removed from the wedding feast. He's actually taken outside the city. He's beaten. He's nailed to a cross. He's mocked. He's brought to shame. And the second Corinthians 5 says that what was happening in that moment is that he was taking our, our sickness, our disease, our evil on himself so that we could have his cleanliness, so that we could have his righteousness, so that we could be whole. Which is why Jesus can get near anyone. It doesn't, they're not going to get to him. Right? He's already taken all our sin and our evil on the cross. Anyone who can get near to him is not going to make him unclean. He's only going to make others clean. And if that's true, right, if that's God's mercy, is him making us clean through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And how the Pharisees are dividing the world here between the righteous and the unrighteous, the sinners and the religious, it doesn't work anymore. Only sinners can follow Jesus. He has to take your sin on to the cross. And that's the only way in to his kingdom. It means that there's no line anymore, right? It's not the righteous are in, the unrighteous are out. It's the humble are in, the proud are out. The broken are in, the put together have no hope. The sick are in, those who are well. And if that's true, if, if you've accepted that and, and Jesus is at the center of your life, his mercy is at the center of your life, it means two things are going to be true. The one, you're going to be someone who moves out into the world to give and share God's mercy. And when I got to seminary, I had a professor who sat a few of a, a students down. He said this to me, and I've never forgotten it. He said this, he said, if at some point I see you in a compromised position, maybe you get arrested, or maybe you're in some place you shouldn't be, First, I'm going to assume that you're there on mission from Jesus. And he wasn't inviting us to be stupid or do anything dumb. But he was clearly communicating to us, if you follow Jesus, you're going to go to places you shouldn't go. You're going to be in places that good people are going to look at you and say, why would you be there? Why would you do that? But if you've tasted God's mercy, if you've had his, his never stopping, never giving up love poured out into you, how could you not? Uh, and I don't know what that means for us the church. I don't want to apply that specifically for you in your life, wherever you're at. I, I know in this moment it meant Jesus went to a really wealthy man's party. And if he wants me to do that, I'm, I'm on for that, right? If that's where the bad place I have to go, I will go to the really wealthy person's party. That's where he's at today, but, but in other times, Jesus is in places of the city no one else will go. Because Jesus, if he is anything, he's a physician with a cure for sick people, and if that is Jesus' central mission, then what that makes us as his church, as people, is a hospital. And imagine a hospital with its, its vast resources, physicians and nurses, medical equipment and medications, that never took on a sick patient. That once you were sick and you were treated, you, you stayed in the hospital, you batted down the doors, you made sure they were locked, you kept itself, yourself firmly insulated from the diseases of the world, be useless. And so are many churches. Right? Are you moving into the world to spread his mercy? And Matthew's the last person you would have ever expected to follow Jesus, which is maybe why no one invited him, why no one crossed that line to say to Matthew, follow me. And if there are people in your life, you're riding off or you're not inviting to follow Jesus because they're just too broken, they're too mad, they just won't get it. Maybe they haven't come because you haven't called. Or you haven't invited them. And the last thing I would say is, is, as Christians, if this is all true, if, if Jesus has poured out his mercy on to you, then we may not live in fear or with security as our greatest aim in life, but we should be going and pressing 
boundaries because we believe God's mercy is so strong over our lives. It has healed us. It has made us clean. And we cannot go somewhere that will corrupt us. It doesn't mean we'd be stupid, but it does mean we go to places we wouldn't otherwise go. So God's mercy, if that's the center of your life, one, you should, you should be moving out into the world to share God's mercy. But secondly, if this is true, if God's mercy is at the center of your life, then it should mean that your sin should only drive you closer to Jesus. Right? Only sinners can follow Jesus. And so when you feel despair, shame, when you feel like you do not measure up in those moments, remember these words from Jesus. It's for this reason I came, to call not the righteous, but sinners. In those moments, Jesus is calling you, saying, follow me. Let me have your shame. You can have my joy. Let me have your sickness. You can taste my healing. Let me have your death so you can start over. Let me have your despair. You come and join my feast. So now as a church, let, let's come and join this feast. And when Jesus 